As you saw last week as Jim started working through this major section of Romans chapter 1, it's a bit of a dark spot in Scripture, isn't it? Talking about sin. I taught through Romans uh, earlier this year with uh, another group, and it's tough slugging through Romans 1, 2, 3, 4. It's just sin, 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 sin. And it's a necessary reminder to us, but it can get overwhelming and dark at a point. I think, honestly, that's part of Paul's intention, is he needs to go down into the depths so as to show off the glory that is the gospel. Now, before we get into this uh, really well-known passage, especially in the modern area, I want to spend some time, and you hopefully picked up a handout when you came in, that gives a very brief outline of the book, because I want to spend a few minutes just giving you one possible way to outline the book. It's, It's the way that at this point in my life, I understand the book, but um, it's just to add it to your repertoire. So Jim, Andrew may see it a little bit differently. Hopefully they come together and they help one another. But I want to situate this dark passage into the whole of Paul's letter. Because he is doing something here. He's not bringing up sin just to knock us over the head with how rotten we are. Okay? He's doing something with his discussion of sin. And I want to see that before we get into some of the weeds and these dark weeds Today, okay, so the way I see the book of Romans is that the main, main verse of the book of Romans is chapter 15, verse 7, where it says, Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. I think in this letter he is going to build to that statement in chapter 15, verse 7. Some people will say the clear theme verse of this epistle is verses 16 and 17. Right, where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is, a, you know, it is the power of God unto salvation. And no doubt that is a, a great verse, but I would say that in my understanding of Romans, that verse, as great as it is, is actually subservient to this one. He needs to talk about gr- how great the gospel is, because ultimately it's the gospel that allows us to accept one another. It's because we've been accepted in Christ that we can reach across the aisle, so to speak, and accept one another within the body of Christ. Okay? And so this being the theme verse... Here's kind of the macro-level outline of the book. You see these first 11 chapters, he's going to talk about Christ through his self-sacrifice receives us by grace. We just say the gospel, right? How does Christ receive us? How does a holy God, we talked about this uh, last Sunday, I think, in the main service, but the question of the gospel is how can a, a holy, perfect God redeem, declare righteous sinners and still remain just and holy? That is the question of the gospel. And Paul is going to set out in the first 11 chapters of Romans and say how that's so. Okay? So Christ, through his self-sacrifice, he receives us by grace. But then starting in, verse, in chapter 12, when he says, therefore, right, therefore we must live this way, he's going to pivot, and the theme changes to believers through their self-sacrifice. Anyone remember off the top of their head what those first two verses of chapter 12 talk about? Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Probably turn there, I guess. Might be helpful. I beseech you by the mercies of God present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So therefore, because of Christ's self-sacrifice, guess what we get to do as believers? Self-sacrifice, right? So chapter 12, verses 1 through to 15, believers through their self-sacrifice must receive each other by grace. And you, so you can see how this complements that theme verse, right? So how can we as believers, as different as we are, how can we accept one another in the church? How can we work together in the church? There's so many differences, so many things that annoy us, so many sin struggles that butt up against one another. How can we possibly accept one another? Well, Paul says, well, here's how. Remember that 
all of you, however different you are, all of you were accepted by Christ because of his self-sacrifice. And he's going to remind us for 11 chapters, going down into the depths like we'll see today, of just how great that sacrifice was, so that when we hold up the, you know, the, the, the flicker of the candle of my offense that I have to look over to accept my brother or sister in Christ, and then I see what Christ uh, has accepted me through, they're not comparable. All of a sudden, I could, it's pretty easy then to accept my brother or sister in Christ compared to what he's accepted me through. Does that make sense as an outline of the book? Okay. So let me, I want to read a, a quote for you. And this is from a, a theologian who studied the book of Romans, but this kind of encapsulates what's going on in Romans. Why Paul put pen to parchment in the first place, this uh, Romans 15, verse 7. So he says this. His name is, is Jim Allman. He says, The problem Paul faced in the Roman church is that both the weak, mainly the Jewish believers at the time, and the strong, mainly Gentile believers, but including people like Paul, so it wasn't exclusively that, so both the weak and the strong considered themselves superior because of their personal distinctions. Okay, so both groups, they're haughty. They, they think that they deserve God's grace more than the other. The weak believe themselves superior to the Gentiles because they abstain from eating certain meats. And we'll see that in chapter 14. We don't touch, the, we don't touch pork chops, right? And they, they held that up as um, an issue of strength for themselves, okay? And thus they condemned the Gentile Christians in the church. But on the other hand, the Gentiles, who knew their freedom in Christ, they despised the Jewish Christians in the church because of their weak faith. Get over it already. You'll have some pork. It's not that big of a deal. And so there's this infighting we'll see later on in Romans. Each group urgently needed to learn that their personal distinctions in no way commend them to God. In no way. Indeed, their personal distinctions stood in the way of their relationship with God. Only those believers who understood that they had nothing to commend them to God would ever understand grace and live fully in it. That, brothers and sisters, is the issue. And not just in Romans, that is the issue of the, great, of the Christian life. If we want to live in grace, we must understand the grace that we've received. He concludes, only in the freedom of God's grace can the church ever be free to be the church. Only then. So a couple of questions just from that quote and this idea of Romans dealing with God's grace. First, how is that true, that last statement? You know, only in the freedom of God's grace can the church actually be the church. How is that true? And then what are some barriers that stop us from being the church, that basically call us to compromise the grace that we've received? What do you think? First, let's start with um, what we're called to be as the church and things that grace helps us to be. If we're going to be the church, I mean, what is the church? That's a pretty esoteric comment. We've got to be the church. I mean, it's so... Um, common to, to hear today. You know, the church isn't the building, it's people. We are, we are the church kind of thing. But what does that actually mean? Let's put it into shoe leather. What does it mean that we are to be the church? So to be the church, it's a spiritual entity. We are to grow in Christ's likeness, away from worldliness. Yeah, George. The, uh, to talk to people about Jesus Christ, to, you know, to show them, because we might be the only church that they see or the only Bible that they know. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so to share the gospel with people who are lost, right? Yeah, that, that takes a certain amount, of, and that is definitely one of the calls of a redeemed people that are moving away from worldliness to Christ-likeness. One of our mandates is clearly, Matthew 28, 
to share the gospel with those who do not know him. What else? What else is being the church? It's not just being holy, and it's not just sharing the gospel, although it is those things. What else does it mean to be the church? Love for one another, right, within the body. So what George was saying is almost love for those outside. We share the gospel. The most loving thing we can do for lost people is not necessarily to feed and clothe them, although those are fine things. The most loving thing we can do is to give them the gospel. That is the most loving thing that we can possibly do. So that's love for the outside. And then Jim's saying love for inside the church as well. What else? And how does the love inside the church, how does it most manifest itself? Like, What does that look like? Is it that we hug each other every time we see each other? What does it mean to actually love one another? Objectively. Like, how can we concretely check it off a to-do list? What does it mean? Does it mean to be there for one another? Does it mean having fellowship with one another? To have fellowship with one another? To be there for one another? I like that because I can get my mind around that. Someone has a need in the church, we meet the need. One of the things we, we sometimes confuse in the Christian church, we get so distracted with meeting the needs outside the church. Again, not a bad thing, but we forget the fact that almost every call to meet needs in the New Testament church is for the people inside the body of Christ. We're to meet the needs of the people in the church. Not to the exclusion of the outside, but that is our primary focus, right? To meet one another's needs. So very practical. What does it mean to love one another? I see a need in the body. I'm going to, by God's grace, help meet that need, intentionally so. Putting that love into practice. Yes. Yes, very good. So what, okay, you said fellowship as well. Help me understand. Like, that's a very loaded Christian term. I want to strip away as much of the Christianese as we oftentimes use. It's right. But what does it mean to fellowship with one? Is this just, is it just being in the same room? Is that fellowship? What does that fellowship mean? I think I have a different opportunity, a different thing to fellowship in terms of some people. People who get together, what do they do? They talk about soccer, they talk about, you know, when I get together, I like to be I hate sports. I hate sports because I'm happy. It's a complete passion. But when I get together with Christians, I like to talk about what God has done for us and what God is doing in our life. And what do we expect God to do? Good. Every year I write out what my expectation is for the next year. Mm-hmm. And I look at it at the end of the year to see what God has done. Yeah, good. So I think my understanding of this fellowship that we're called, you know, the, in the early church... They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to prayer and the fellowship of the saints, right? This koinonia. I think the fellowship is a fellowship around shared truths, around biblical truths. That is the joy that this fellowship, it's what unites us. The truth of most preeminently, the, the gospel is that truth, right? We have that fellowship around that. So we have love one another, meet one another's needs. Um, we are also to equip the saints, right? That is what the church is supposed to do, to build one another up in the body of Christ so that we can reach maturity, so that we mature in the faith. Good morning. So we mature in the faith, right? So that's one of the, the missions of the church. Reach lost people, but also make sure that all believers are growing up in maturity. And that means identifying and killing sin, helping one another, praying for one another, meeting one another's needs. And we are to worship the Lord together as well, right? We are to worship God. Now, all those three, let's just pretend for a second. And I know it's an oversimplification, but to be the church means that we are to be a, pe- a people, a group that worships God together builds one another up, and reaches lost people. Let's just say that those are the three things that we're called to do, to be the church. How does the freedom of God's grace help those three things? That's what I want to know. And how does a lack of freedom of grace stifle those three things? If that's what it looks like, an oversimplification, to be the church, how is it important to understand the grace of God to fuel those three things, to do them rightly? 
we're forgiven? Being forgiving. Being forgiving. Yes, we forgive because we've been forgiven much, right? So it's pretty important to, in the body of Christ, to be forgiving. Yes, very good. Okay, yeah, expand on that a little bit. Yeah, so humbling yourself, certainly. How would that play itself out in some of those three areas? Very good. Yeah, you think those three things, let's just take them one at a time. Humility is a, a huge one, so I'm glad you brought that up. Humility, coming in a, a posture of humility, certainly fuels my worship. Like, I don't know how to worship the God of the universe if I'm haughty and proud and full of myself and think that I deserve everything I'm singing about and those kinds of things. Like, how do those two things go together? So humility, certainly, as I understand the grace of God that he's poured about, out on me, a, a wretched sinner... I can then respond in worship. Oh, you are worthy of so much more than I can even give you right now. Right? So humility definitely fuels our worship. Um, humility definitely uh, fuels the building up of the body of Christ as well. If someone comes to me and says, brother, I see a potential sin in your life. I can respond with humility and say, my pursuit of Christ's likeness is, is more important than my pride in that moment. I can thank the brother or sister and say, yes, you're right. I need to pursue this. I mean, that takes humility as well, right? It takes humility on the flip side to go to someone in love. And not say, you failure, you are bothering everyone. Like, that's not a humble way to go about that same equipping of the saints, right? We go about it, I'm concerned because I know our goal is the same. And we've been redeemed by the same God and all of these truths we share. So therefore, let's pursue together. Humility just changes everything. And certainly humility in sharing the gospel. Like, maybe you've seen bully tactics used in evangelism where there seems to be a lack of humility, it doesn't always go super well, right? It's, it's one of the reasons that you know, the Christians can be seen as kind of a, a blunt force object that just comes after people kind of hammering the Bible thumper kind of stereotype, right? It's because there's a lack of humility at times. Now, some of that is just lost people offended by the truth, but some of it is legitimate. We can be haughty, proud people at times. Yeah. So humility changes everything. So true, Bertha. The self-righteousness, and Paul will explicitly attack that in Romans, this self-righteousness. How can I be made right with God? Well, there are people that Paul is addressing that are so full of self-righteousness. Of course, the Lord would save me. You know what I bring to the table? Of course, he's got a good deal with me. And Paul's going to cut that out at the legs and just say, that's not the case. So again, accept one another. But the idea is that when Paul wrote to the church in Rome, there was this, this struggle in the body between Jew and Gentile. Um, there was a, a, this was a new man coming together, a mystery, he calls it in Ephesians, that they didn't know before. There was God's people, Israel, and to be made right with God, what did someone have to do in the Old Testament? They had to come into Israel, right? They had to be circumcised, they had to take on the law, and then they could be made right with God. But then the cross happens, the resurrection happens, the wall of hostility is torn down between these two groups, and all of a sudden they're staring at each other, people that they used to have all this enmity against, and, and Paul's saying... You're one in Christ, one body. Have at it. And people are like, what, what do we do? Yeah, go ahead. Then, if that's the case, then why is there so many denominations that are 
dominations out there today. You know what I mean? Like so many, so many other churches believe one thing and other yep. churches believe another thing. Yeah. Yeah. So the question of denominationalism is a, um, is a good one, and it's a complicated one. On one hand, I would say that it is a picture of God's grace, and that we have the freedom to explore the word and come to different convictions. And a lot of denominationalism is along uh, theological lines. Some of it is legitimate. You know, we can't fellowship with them because we, we, we don't understand a certain doctrine in line to fellowship easily. We, we, we are gathered along theological lines. And I think some of that is the grace of God. You know, he allows us to do that. And all of these different expressions of the body of Christ are a testament to his, his grace. Other ways, though, there's pride involved. And we schism quickly. We split quickly. We don't accept one another. You know, instead of working out a theological difference and being able to sit in a church together across from a brother or sister who I know thinks something different than me, and being able to worship and break bread with them. Instead of that, I'm just going to start my own church. You know, part of that could be a prideful, kind of schismatic attitude that we have. So I think it's both and. I don't think it's a super simple answer, the denominationalism. Um, I think also some of it historically is a reaction to the Reformation. You know, at the time, the Catholic Church had kind of a, a hold on what church meant. And then when the Reformers split uh, away from the Catholic Church, it kind of got some protest in our blood, and now we just continue to protest. We, we like to um, you know, stand our ground. Um, so I think it's, it's both and. Denominationalism is Ever be free to be the church. It's a Christ expense, isn't it? It's not any other thing. It's going to be our freedom. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. So again, you understand that when there's these two groups in the first century that are used to hating each other, and they're used to being divided over significant things, the covenant with Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the people who did not get the covenant, and that's a significant division, right? And now this wall has been torn down and they're having to learn how to live in one body and, and accept one another across that line. Um, Paul's saying, listen, the only way that you can be a church the way the Lord has called you to be a church is to really focus on the freedom you have in God's grace. And that doesn't erase all distinctions. You know, he's not into uniformity, but he's into unity, the unity we have in Christ. And those two things are very different to keep in mind. In our church, we don't crave uniformity. We love the fact that there are different perspectives and different people in our church, but we do want to celebrate the unity we do have. Whether we act like it or not, we have unity in Christ. We have unity. We want to act like it. We want to act like we actually are as unified as the Bible says we are and not crave uniformity. In fact, uniformity kind of stifles the body. I mean, got a bunch of thumbs in a body. That doesn't do much good. Got a bunch of noses. That doesn't do much good. We need the full orb body to function as the body. And the only way we can do that is if we understand God's grace the free gift that he gives us, that he unites us to himself and to one another. So back to this simple outline. Again, I know this is oversimplification, but you can see how these two things work together. If we are going to accept one another and act like the church, worshiping together, reaching lost people and building one another, if we're going to do that, 
And if we're going to do that with effectiveness and power, we have to first understand that how much we are accepted in Christ. We, we've got to understand that. Because in that is the freedom to lay my life down for a brother or sister in Christ. That's the difference. So in accepting one another, implicit in there is this climb up on that altar. It says offer your bodies a living sacrifice. The problem with a living sacrifice is it climbs off the altar every day. You've got to climb back up there every single day, lay your life down for a brother or sister in Christ. The only way we can do that is if we understand that Christ laid down his life for us and we model ourselves after him by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Any comments, questions about the macro outline of the book before I move on? Because we're going to talk about some dark stuff today. Sin, sin, sin. Um, which I want to understand where he's going, though. He's not just using it for sin's sake. He doesn't want to just tell us how bad we are and just stay there. It's so that we can understand that we actually have that in common, and that brings, makes the salvation so wonderful. It's when we understand how wretched we are. Yeah, God's grace. Yes, my question would be in the accepting one another. How do we accept one another and stay correct in love? Yeah. Great question. So the question is, how do we accept one another and still correct one another, right? And I think we implicitly know how to do this, especially as parents. You know, we know how to accept our children or our spouse or our brothers and sisters. We know how to do that and still correct them, hopefully. Like, I can still correct, my wife can still correct me, and I don't feel like our marriage is in jeopardy, right? There's acceptance there because there's this overarching commitment that supersedes any sort of correction. And that's an earned trust, isn't it? My wife can do that because I have an earn, she's earned trust that I can say, I believe that you are still committed to this overarching relationship, and so you can correct me underneath this umbrella. In the church, it's the same thing. We are in Christ. You are in Christ. I'm in Christ. We have this in common. And so when someone comes up to me and in all their fallenness, I don't know if this ever happened to you. They come up and say, I have a problem with something about you. I think it's ungodly. Sometimes, it's, sometimes that is done well, and sometimes not so well, right? You know, I can't control how it comes to me. I can control how I think of that person, how I think of myself, how I think about the criticism. Are they a brother or sister in Christ? Yes, even if they didn't bring it forth in the greatest way. Am I a sinner saved by grace? Yes, even though I think I'm in the right in this point. Is there any truth to this criticism? All of a sudden, underneath this umbrella of accepted in God's grace, there can be grace extended on how I receive criticism, how we extend it, knowing that, this brother or sister, myself, our goal is the same. And we are still united in those uh, superseding truths, right? The goal is still Christ-likeness. They probably could have handled that a little bit better. They probably could have brought it forward a little nicer, those kind of things. But um, I'm going to default to thinking the best of them because, I mean, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so it's not like I earned Christ's sacrifice on my behalf. I'm going to accept this, this uh, dagger, perhaps, from someone under the umbrella of we are united and we have the same goal. Does that make sense? So it just gives a freedom underneath that security to actually interact and pursue another in all of our sinfulness toward Christ-likeness. You know, you think of a marriage or a relationship with a brother or sister, it's under the umbrella of the covenant, that sure thing relationship that there's true freedom to be yourself, to correct, to encourage to let the person see who you really are. There's freedom under that umbrella when you know that this isn't going anywhere, this overarching truth. I know I'm securing Christ, therefore I can pursue Christ with everything I've got, never afraid that I'm all of a sudden going to go outside of Christ. I'm never going to lose that commitment. 
Right? I have true freedom to pursue that, just like in the church. We are united. We have this in common, the self-sacrifice, so we are free to really try to help one another pursue Christ like this, knowing that we will probably step off the, the path a couple of times and embarrass ourselves, hurt someone. Then there's forgiveness. There's forgiveness available when, when, we, uh, when we do that as well, underneath that big umbrella. I don't know if that's what helps at all. Yeah, exactly. Guys, the two words I think that we might be able to distinguish here, the one, the one is acceptance, mm-hmm. the other one is approval. Uh, acceptance doesn't mean approval. Uh, to accept is to, is to uh, care for one another, to value one another, yeah. uh, to truly love one another. But approval means uh, to agree. Yes. And... Uh, uh, that's where uh, we're free to uh, have distinctions because not everything is agreeable. And uh, uh, we need to be very careful mm-hmm. not to approve the things that are evil, but to approve the things that are excellent. Yes. So that's where contentions can arise. But mm-hmm. if, if contentions are dealt with in a spirit of acceptance, yeah. then we have a good thing going yeah, what Jim talks about this difference between acceptance and agreeability or agreeing with someone um, is a huge issue that often those two things get conflated and get confused and we get into trouble. So not only within the church, like Jim is saying, for sure, you know, um, even you know, doctrinal distinctions we may have in our church, we can um, accept someone who sees something differently than us and still disagree and we still have fellowship there because of what binds us. It also gets confused outside the church, as we'll see in our passage today if we ever get to it, right? Is this idea of um, there is sin, and we can accept one another, and, not, and we cannot agree with the sin. And so our world likes to conflate the, those two issues. Well, you're supposed to accept, and that, to them that means agree and affirm and celebrate even certain sins. We're saying, no, no, we can accept someone as an image bearer of God in need of the grace that we have been given, but we do not have to. In fact, we cannot agree with things that God has called wrong. Honestly, in the church as well. You know, we can accept one another, but if there is sin in a brother or sister's life, it is incumbent upon us. We must go to them as a body member and address that sin with humility, but address that sin because we cannot agree with it, just as I hope they would not agree with it in my life if they saw it, because the goal of Christ-likeness is too precious. It's too important. Um, and again, that's where this balance needs to come by. But that a distinction that Jim brings up is so important. Agreeing with something versus accepting. Uh, accepting does not mean just open arms, willy-nilly, everything goes. That's not biblical acceptance. And that's certainly not what Paul is talking about in, Rome, in Romans 15. Accept one another. You know, everything goes. It's just a big part. No, that's not what he means. But, okay, we can accept one another, but what the person might not accept the instruction, the correction. Yes. Not everybody likes to be told that, Yeah, absolutely. So Rose is saying, you know, we can accept someone, but they may not accept the criticism. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I would say 50-50 sometimes, you know. Um, and you know, what, what helps is understanding that I can only control me. I'm responsible for my conscience before the Lord, what I do before the Lord. And you're right. You pray for someone, they may not accept your, your encouragement, your correction. Um, life in the body. Sin makes a mess of things you know, in, in relationships. Go ahead, Rick. I guess one thing I can say I, I've witnessed in the past few years, and, and I struggle with understanding it, is a conviction of using the, or, or using the word through, like, kind of like 
manipulation, almost like a conviction to the person. Yeah. Whereas you need to have allow that person to have God's conviction. Somehow, I guess we need to put them on put the person on the track of reading the word mm. being convicted through God's word instead of just being hammered by yeah. somebody's It does. I, I think I follow you. Yeah. We were always told, you know, when you're getting ready for ministry to hide in the word as much as possible. Even as a coward. Like sometimes you want to hide. You have to say things. The word compels you to. And you want to hide because it's, it's a hard thing to say in our culture. And we were always told to hide in the word. Point them to the word. Like get the argument off of me. Don't argue with me. You're going to have to argue with the Lord here. Like help me understand what this says and how this lives out in our life. To kind of, because um, I'm just a guy. Like who cares what I think? Honestly, who cares? But if we're both made right with God through faith in Christ, and we both say that we want to follow Christ, and we both say God is our final authority, then let's go to the authority, and and we can disagree on what this says here, but make this the object of the conversation, and not my opinion versus your opinion, your life's over. No, we both want to be more like Christ, so let's go there and see his example and his word and try to conform to that. Um, to get the info off of us or the spotlight off of us. Yes? Go ahead, Sue. In certain circumstances, I think it's an inevitability. I think you yeah. have to. You come to certain doctrinal issues, like even just take the, the elders. We are, praise the Lord, very united doctrinally, but there might be some little minute ports of doctrine where we see things differently. And we can go to the Word, and we can go through those passages, but at some point, we have to just say, well, agree to disagree. You know, that, we're not talking about the gospel. We're talking about something tertiary, something on the outside, and we have to just say, okay, agree to disagree. And I think that's okay. That's part of that diversity within the body, under the umbrella. That's part of the lack of uniformity, but there's unity in spite of our, our different interpretations. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's definitely appropriate. It can be misused. I'm sure, you know, like, well, agree to disagree. You know, how is someone saved? Well, by grace, through faith, plus something else. You say, whoa, okay, I'm not going to necessarily agree to disagree on that one. You know, I'm going to disagree, period. Uh, yeah, and because that is of such central importance, you know, um, yeah, anyways, so there are, there are phases to that. I think it is appropriate at times and inevitable at times, but there are other times we, we want to stand our ground. Yeah. Okay, now, I want to, again, for the sake of the argument, and this may get a little pedantic for a moment here, but I want to zoom in and keep zooming in on this outline until we get to our text today, because I want us to see that what we're going to talk about today, this sinfulness in Romans chapter 1, it's part of his larger argument, okay? And you have an outline. Hopefully you came. It'll help you track with me a little bit. Um, it's an incomplete outline, but it'll kind of help you follow Paul's uh, line of thought. So obviously, out of these two, we're not yet at the accept one another. He's going to dig into the gospel now, and he's going into the basis for how we can even accept one another, which is this Christ through his self-sacrifice receives us by grace, okay? So now he's going to flesh that out as we keep going in chapters 1 through 11, okay? And he's going to say a few things. He's going to say first, Christ, through his self-sacrifice, brings a life of right relationship with God to the believer. No surprise to us, right? He's just kind of this, he's going to describe that. Okay, how Christ, through his self-sacrifice, brings this right relationship um, to the believer. And then in chapter 9, he's going to talk about Israel specifically. Israel, like the Gentiles, will receive life by faith alone. Now, 
The big thing about Romans is he's talking to this mixed group now, right? And he's saying we're saved by grace. You're one body. The natural question comes up, especially for the Jews in their midst, the Jewish believers in their midst is, but what about the promises to Israel? That is a question. Didn't he make promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Didn't he make promises to them? Are we just a race now? That's the whole question. Is he making new promises now that kind of, and he's out with the old, in with the new. And in chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul's going to explicitly talk about that question that he anticipates from them. He says, by no means. He's not done. He's going back for Israel. And he's going to mention that, and he's going to talk about that specifically. Because that's just a question that will come up as he goes through this, um, this passage, okay? We're not there yet. Obviously, we're in this first part where he's just talking generally. How are we made right with God? That is the question of the gospel. How can sinners like us be made right with God? And he's going to say, through Christ's sacrifice. Any questions there? Okay. So let's uh, keep going here. Let's zoom in, because this is the one we're on now, right? This, uh, this one here. So now he's going to talk about a few other things, kind of flesh this out a bit. So we saw, a couple of weeks ago, Paul is proud of the gospel, you know, that sinners can be made right with God through faith alone. Remember he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation, to the Jew preeminently, but also to the Greek, to the Gentile as well. So we're going to talk about that. And then faith in Christ, who gave himself for sinful humanity, is right relationship with God. Right relationship is found through faith. Okay? And then Christ, through his self-sacrifice, brings life to those who are righteous in faith. And we are, obviously, right here. So let's zoom in again. We're getting closer to where we are. All humanity. This is where it gets dark. Okay, remember, he's going to talk about the jewel of the gospel, but you've got to go into the depths before you see that it sparkle. Right? All humanity, whether Jew or Gentile, you can see the unity start to form now doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, is equally condemned before God. But God has provided a way of relenting to himself without law and, with, and through faith. So there's the good news. So you've got bad news, good news. Okay, there's all of us. It doesn't matter if you came up through the Mosaic law, if you're just coming to faith now and you're a Samaritan. It doesn't matter. All humanity, we stand condemned before the Lord. But God has provided a way. Okay? But again, we're not at the good news yet this morning. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're still at this bad news here. So here's where we are this morning, right here. And Jim started this last week, but we are in this, the depths, really, of the sinfulness. God is universally, right now and presently, pouring out his wrath against all sinful men who refuse to honor him, turning them over to greater sin. I remember when we were working as elders through our um, doctrinal statement, like what we teach, and we've just been working through it recently, kind of rehashing it and giving detail and, and prayerful thought to it. We came to the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of um, eternal punishment and those things we were thinking through, going over the scriptures that do that. I remember, I don't know if Jim remembers this, but there was an audible pause after we read the statement on eternal separation from God, and we were like, ugh, this is bad news. It is heavy, heavy, dark news. And really, that's what we're going to talk about today, unfortunately. What separates us from God eternally? And God is actively pouring out his wrath. Some of us, that's hard to reconcile. God is love. Jesus has the lambs. The children come to him, right? And he's pouring out his wrath and causing us to sin more and more. And then eventually the self-righteousness, we talked about that, the self-righteousness, all stand condemned by God for sin. So one of the reactions to this is people want to make themselves righteous. Well, I don't, I, I'm sinful? Okay, I'll make myself righteous before God. And Paul's going to address that and say, whoa, 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 all self-righteous as well are apart from God. So this is where we are, but I, again, I don't want us to miss the fact that this, what we're going to talk about today, is part of this huge argument, okay? I know you can't read this, but I just want you to see that it's in this huge argument of this first half of Romans where he says, Christ, through his self-sacrifice, receives us by grace. 
We're going to talk about the darkness of sin today, but it's under this huge umbrella, and he's trying to get us to a place where we can accept one another because Christ has accepted us. How's that for an introduction to what we're going to talk about today? Time's up. Let's pray. No, but that's, that's kind of where we're, going. That's where we're going today, okay? I want you to understand that there is a trajectory to this letter. Remember, it's a letter. We oftentimes split it apart, and we have to, but he's, he's just writing a letter to people he loves, and there's a point to the letter he wants to get across and a problem he's trying to address. Any questions before we get to the text? You've been sufficiently warned of the darkness that awaits us. All right, let's go. Romans chapter 1, and I know Jim covered this. I want to take a a running start at it, uh, starting in verse 18, because it is one section there, but we're going to really start studying it around verse 24, 25. I'm wondering if someone could read for us, though, verses 18 through 23 to start us. This is what you studied last week, but just to remind us, 18 through verse 23. Okay, so a sad beginning to this section. You studied this last week, and we just reread it now. Anything that jumps out at you that needs comment? Anything that you remember from last week that just struck you or a remaining question that you might have about that text? I'm sorry, Rose? Goodness. We exchange it. What a silly trade. Huh? What a silly trade. And it's even worse. I was just struck again in verse 23. These people, we exchange, we trade. Like back in the day when you trade hockey cards and stuff, you get someone has a rookie, you trade this bent up. It's just a terrible trade. A terrible trade. We exchange the glory for the incorruptible, perfect God, for not even corruptible things, but the image of something that resembles the corruptible thing. So it's not even like we're exchanging the glory of God for, for creation. It's even worse than that. Something that resembles, that resembles, that resembles. Thing. It's like trading a, a Wayne Gressy rookie card for like kind of a picture that kind of looks like a card from someone you've never heard of. It's not even remotely close. How sad that is. And we did it willingly in this text. Like that is, again, when we're talking about how to accept one another, it's almost like you hear um, coaches in the Olympics will sometimes say, you know, they get an athlete and they got to tear them down before they build them back up, right? They tear them down to the sticks or, or remodeling a house. You tear it down to the, the sticks to build it back up. It's kind of what Paul's doing here. We're going to be united. We're going to accept one another. I'm going to tear you down to the sticks. You're going to see the real underbelly of how depraved we really are. We'll exchange the, the glory, the manifest glory of the God Almighty for a photocopy of something that is completely fallen. It's just, no wonder he says, thinking that they were wise, they became fools. Just absolute foolishness. But they're very proud about it. Look how proud we are. Do we see that today at all? 
A little bit, right? You know, kind of like in the Old Testament, and Israel had no king, and people did what was right in their own eyes, and they become their own gods. All right. I have a Oh, yes. Absolutely. A world that, he's very clear here, he and think of Psalm 19, the heavens declare, God has made himself known. But as people turn away from that revelation, it's interesting here, we'll get to it in verse 25, but uh, actually let me go there. Therefore, verse 24, therefore God gave them over. Notice here that he's giving them over. They exchange him. So then he, in a, in a crass way, returns the favor. Then he gives them over. Right? They, we go first. He gives us over. And just in case we're confused at whether that's, it kind of sounds like a getting out of the way. Right? You want this so badly, I'm going to get out of the way and let you have what your heart desires. That's part of it. But this is an active verb in Greek. There's something about it that God actively does. Okay? Um, this is the same verb that is used of Judas when Judas betrayed Jesus. Judas didn't just get out of the way and let Jesus go to the cross. He sought out the religious leaders. He took the money. He kissed the Lord on the, in the garden, right? So there's something active about this, which is just, to me, makes it even more tragic. But it follows in our exchange of God. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Notice that. They didn't honor him. So then, then he allows us to dishonor our own. There's a poetic... Um, Symmetry to this. They dishonor him, so he allows them to dishonor themselves. Now, here's what I want to get to. Verse 25. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Notice here that we never are not worshipping and serving. Even the people that are turning away from the Lord, they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. We are created as serving and worshiping beings. That is in us. We cannot get away from it. As much as people want to turn away from the Lord who who deserves all worship and adoration and service, as the great theologian Bob Dylan once said, you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil. It may be the Lord. But you got to serve someone. Everyone serves and worships somebody. In our day and age, people worship themselves, worship the scientific method, worship rationale, worship our minds, worship creation, worship whatever. We are worshiping and serving something if it's not God. This passage to me makes it very clear that there is no such thing as atheism. No such thing. People will claim atheism. They're lying to themselves. God is very clear. They can harden their heart. They can turn inward and worship themselves, worship their own intellect, worship whatever, but they are lying to themselves. A huge boon for those who do evangelism with atheists. We know, as the author of Ecclesiastes says, God has written eternity on their hearts. It's there. It's there. They may have hardened it and calloused it and covered it over with concrete, but it's there. And they need the light of the gospel to chisel away that hardness. But don't believe someone when they say they're completely atheistic. They may think on the outside that they're this novel creation. Not true. The Lord has clearly made it known to them. They've hardened themselves, and they are worshiping and serving something. Our job is to direct him toward that which deserves, he that deserves all worship and service, a good king, rather than something that will constantly disappoint themselves, whatever else we put in that place. 
Okay? But yes, today, we see in our culture today people turning away from God who has revealed himself and turning to whatever. We have to fill in that gap. I am going to worship blank. I am going to serve blank. You've got to fill in that gap. And if it's not God, it will disappoint. And it will leave us broken. And it will not fulfill the promises we think whatever that is is making. There's only one that will fill the promises um, that, that he's making, and that's God himself. Yes. Yeah, I think so. The I think in one way I I totally agree with you, Tony. It is getting harder in our culture to share the gospel because they have taken um, same same words, different dictionary in some ways, right? Uh, this is what it means to love your neighbor. So, well, we we have a different understanding of what it means to love our neighbor. Now, this is what it. We don't want to hate. We say, well. We would say that the most hateful thing we can do is not you know, uh, share with them the hope, the reason for the hope that we have. So it's, it's, they have different definitions. I have a neighbor, maybe you've seen these, that has a, um, a sign in their lawn that says, hate has no home here. You've seen those? Um, apologies if you have one. I just think that is the most moronic statement I've ever seen, the moronic sign. Like it's on its face. No one thinks that hate should have a home here. No, that is a statement that everyone except a deluded person would agree with. Hate has no, we don't want hate. The problem is they, mean, they redefine hate to mean what, what Jim was saying here, um, where it's not acceptance, it's affirmation. It's, it's, it's um, you know, uh, never taking a stand for truth at all, even though we know the most loving thing we can do is to give someone truth in a loving way, you know, with, with meekness and humility, but with urgency because eternity is at stake. So in some ways, it is hard because the culture is shining bright on these these um, claims of exclusivity, which, make no mistake, we hold with a tight, full, two-handed grip. There's one way to God the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if that means standing on that, um, that claim of exclusivity means that everyone else is wrong, you bet. That is exactly what I'm saying. Uh, and that, that is. And the culture says those claims are very offensive. Right? That's, very, that's very judgmental. You've heard that as well. It is judgmental. I am judging that one is wrong and one is right. You know, I don't need to be judgmental in the way I come across and say it, but I am absolutely going to stand there and say there is one way to God the Father, out of love you know, and urgency. In some ways, I find it's actually, in a little ways, and maybe uh, some of you can, can push back on me or, or affirm this, it's getting somewhat easier to share the gospel I found in the last number of years because, at least in the generation following me, a lot of them are tired of this relativistic type of wishy-washy truth. Like they, some people are, many people are very hungry for stability, and they're hungry for these things that the world has promised it can give them through pursuits of tolerance and all this kind of stuff, and it hasn't really come to fruition. They, they don't have peace. They don't have all these things that they're longing for, that the world has promised, that Canada has promised, the way it goes about. And so they're looking for those things that we have an inroad to the gospel say, I know, and it was never going to solve those problems, but we know something that does. So at a macro level, it is hard to share the gospel because the culture is so against claims of exclusivity, but I find when you get under that and talk to people one-on-one, -on -one, people are still people. 
people are still lost in sin and aching for peace and stability and, and salvation and, and all that kind of stuff. It's just that the conversation has changed a little bit. I, I could be wrong. My sample size could be off, but that's just what I've, um, I've found. If, if nothing else, you know, the last two years, if someone had been hiding from their own mortality, you know, burying their head in the sand and pretending like they were going to live forever, uh, that has been largely pried away from most people today. You know, we've been faced with the, the finitude of life and our weakness. Um, if that's not an inroad for the gospel of life, I'm not sure what is. Um, but people are still hard to it. Like, there's still a lot of hardness and a lot of uh, um, pushback for sure, but... Um, Oh, man. And uh, I want to say, if anybody drives by my house, it was not my idea to put it on the street. <laughs> but I, I had this, I, I did not want it. And yet, my husband said, no, I want that there. And I'm thinking, really? Don't think this yeah. is making a comment. And he said, you don't dare yeah. put that down. Yeah. And it depends. I don't want to read motivations of people. Like, there are images on that sign that, you know, I, I'm, I mean, the church of all people should be against racism, for example. The sin of partiality, we should, like, absolutely. But to me, that is the, the most obvious form of virtue signaling. Making a statement that everyone agrees with, but making it such a way that's divisive and saying, a lot of you all don't believe this. That's, just, that's not true. It's just we're redefining words. And so I think it's, a, it's an exercise in virtue signaling. Look at our house we are the righteous ones. Anyone else is, is unright. It's self-righteousness, and we'll get to that. Right? It's this idea of, I'm going to make myself and will myself to be made right with God, a good person. I'm saying, yeah, nonsense. We, we are self-righteous factories. We love trying to redeem ourselves when the gospel is very clear that we can do nothing. Um, all right, just a couple more minutes. So these are, notice here that man has rejected God, and so then God gives them over. And he gives them over to this sin, and it just keeps getting worse. Um, and there's three times he says, gave them over. So verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them over to the degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. I'm not sure what that due penalty is, but it can't be good. We could speculate, and many people have speculated, it's this disease, it's these kinds of things, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. All I know is in this act is built in error, and they are getting it. Notice as well that this is, right from the beginning, the wrath of God is being poured out upon sinfulness on all humanity. Like, creation groans. The wrath of God is experienced by by all, to lesser extents, but it's not just, for example, homosexuals that are experiencing the wrath of God. It is the culture at large. When we turn from the Lord and replace it with worship of anything else, the wrath of God comes upon a culture. Okay? And part of it is this, this, uh, this unnatural turning. Again, this is part of this dishonoring our bodies. We don't honor God. He deserves honor. We say, we're not giving it to you. God says, I'm going to give you over 
to dishonor yourselves, to go against how you're designed. And, it's, it's, and, and then we read on and we see that there's celebration of it that comes later, right? It's not only a dishonoring, it's, it's, an, it's an affirmation, a celebration, basically what we're talking about before in our culture. Verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over for a third time, gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which are not proper. Now, verse 29 through 31 uh, is, is a list, but in, in the original language in Greek, there's no um, connective words. And when they do that in Greek, it's basically a funnel, okay? So what Paul is doing now, he's going to funnel us with this long list of examples of godlessness down to verse 32. That's where he wants us to land in verse 32. It's not that the list is unimportant, but it's, it serves to funnel us down. We're not supposed to stop at every every individual thing. He wants to get us to verse 32. So he says, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. And then this one's odd. Disobedient to parents. Throw that one in there as well. Um, Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. You can see he's just, it is everywhere. And it is all-encompassing. It, is, it permeates everything. Just sin is everywhere. And then verse 32 where he lands, and although they know the ordinance or the command of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they, are not, on, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And again, there's that statement of, although they know, they know I don't believe in God. There's no such thing as divine judgment. There's no accountability, blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. No, no. Nonsense. You can lie to yourself all day long. You're not going to lie to the Lord. The Lord says, you know the commands of God. You know that what you're doing, there's something wrong with it. You know it. And you know it's worthy of death. And they not only do the same, they not only practice these things, but it says then they start celebrating them. And they demand celebration for them. And goodness gracious, are we not there in our culture today? You know, it's not good enough to have this um, pervasive sinfulness, we are demanding celebration of it. And not just, um, you'll notice, not just uh, tolerance of it. That's not enough anymore, is it? You can't just tolerate sin. No, you have to celebrate it. You, know, you cannot stand on the sidelines. You have to get in the parade. You have to celebrate it as well. And in this passage, this is the natural progression of God pouring out his wrath and giving people over to the lust of their heart. It just gets worse and worse and worse. Now, before we close, and we are going to close here in a second, Remember, this is a dark spot. In the, this is a dark spot, but it is part of a bigger, bigger message that he's doing here. He's going to start, talk next week about the self-righteousness. We hinted at it a little bit today. I'm going to try to justify, justify myself. I know in my heart that I deserve death. Well, what's the solution? I've got to make myself better so that I don't deserve death. He's going to say, whoa, 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 we can't do that. But then understand that this is also part of what will happen in chapter 3. Saying, but God provided a way of relenting to himself without the law. So it is getting to a point where he says, but God, in spite of all this treachery, God has provided a way. In spite of all the depravity, in spite of all of the wickedness, God provided a way. And that he's going to pull us into this uniting in Christ. Therefore, how can we not accept one another? If he accepted all of us in spite of all this nonsense, how can we not accept one another? But he's going down into the depths of depravity first to take us down to the sticks before he builds us back up. (laughs) Any final... Of course, I know we zipped through that. We'll probably go back to it again next week, I'm sure, and rehash some of those um, details of that passage. But I wanted us not to get totally lost in the trees and see the force of what Paul's doing here a little bit.
Any final comments or? Yesterday I, I saw on the, a YouTube clip an interview with a man who spent six months uh, working for Facebook, uh, trying to delete all the worst things that uh, come up on Facebook. So in order to delete them, they had to see these things. And uh, he said he lasted about six months, and uh, uh, he, he saw all the other people falling like flies as they were looking at the grossest forms of evil that were being yeah. presented on the Internet. Yeah. Things that just, even to talk about them, were so disgusting. But to actually see them... Mm -hmm. This man was uh, uh, visibly shaken, visibly destroyed in his mind, yeah. and everybody around him was destroyed. Just seeing the evil that was being presented, uh, it, was, it, was, it was just terrible. Yeah. It's just like Satan is pouring out uh, 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 out of his mouth, uh, like a sewer, yeah. over, overflowing yeah. uh, the, the, uh, the streets. Uh, yeah. and. Uh, that's what's happening in this world today. Two things to leave you with. What Jim said there, the, the, the depths of our depravity, we cannot plumb. It goes down and down. We turn away from an infinitely good God. It's darkness down there. So two things. First, we live in a world that is given over. Just, just be aware of that. Put on the armor of God. Protect your kids, your grandkids. Protect your mind. Steal your mind against this world. It wants your mind. You know, and it is a take-no-prisoners war. They want it, and they will not stop until they have your mind. It's a battle for the mind. He will say in Romans chapter 12, by the renewing of your mind. That's how we get it. So that's one. Know the war that we're in, but also know how great our God is. That this is a war that has been won, you know, outside of time and space. We are on the winning side. And that also, again, as we see a world that is so depraved, understand that so were we, if not for the grace of God. There's a humbling factor to this. We look in the mirror of Romans 1 and be like, if not for God's grace, there I stand as well. And so when we go out to minister into this world, it's not this condescending, you disgusting. It is evil. And it profanes the reputation and name of the Lord. But again, there's a humility there that I share this background with you if you just come to Christ and we can be accepted in Christ together. There is rescue from this depravity. So there's a motivating... We want to steel ourselves against it, but also in humility, knowing that if not by God's grace, that's us as well. And so there is this um, urgency that comes with it to get people the only truth that can help them out of that muck and mire is the gospel that we'll get to eventually in 2024 as we go through Romans, however long it takes us as we march through this quickly. We are out of time. Let's go worship together. Thanks for your patience. <laughs>